takes this incredible amount of this amazingly great smelling ointment and she puts it all on Jesus at one time. And not only that, she comes to his feet. Remember, it was, it was Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, who just a few days earlier fell at Jesus' feet when his daughter had died and pleaded for Jesus to raise her, and he did. So Mary falls at Jesus' feet. The house is filled with people. It's a celebration. All of a sudden, whoa, this whole house is filled with this really expensive ointment. And everyone can smell it. It just sounds, smells amazing. And she takes it and she pours it all at one time on Jesus. And she takes her own hair and she wipes his feet. And the house was filled with fragrance. Jesus said in verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. It's another sermon we'll preach if you want to come back some Sunday on that one. But Jesus is giving a foreshadowing here. Yes, you do anoint dead bodies with ointment like this. And she's doing what God's told her to do. The first person I want you to see this week that looks at Jesus in this is, is Mary, who sees him with incredible passion, incredible thanksgiving, incredible worship. I mean, she seems to be the one in this story that really understands who he is. And when you truly understand, listen to me, when you truly understand who he is, there's nothing too great to give him. There's nothing worth saving for yourself when he is there. I mean, it's all about him. As you can see, she literally pours herself and pours these resources toward him. And she's just delighted to be in his presence. And she's passionate about him. And she loves him. And she's grateful for him. And she's worshiping him. We see this beautiful picture of this woman who does this at the feet of Jesus. May that be our story. May we not care about how expensive things are and how much we want to hold on to them and what other people might think about us. May we just realize that Jesus Christ is here in our midst and he's worthy of all of our praise and all that we have. But I want to contrast this woman who is not a disciple with one of his most trusted disciples. You don't give the money to a person you don't trust, right? So go back with me. As she's pouring all of this expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, verse 4, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John tells us he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he himself was in charge of the money bag. And he used it to help himself to what was put in it. Here we have Mary's response to Jesus is abandoned worship and giving it all. At the same time, you have one who has been intimately close to Christ for three years. One of the absolute closest people to Christ for three years. 
This man has seen Jesus walk on the water, feed 5,000, open blinded eyes, make the deaf to hear, make the lame to walk, make the dead. He has seen Lazarus, seen all of that, and none of it matters because he loves money more than he loves Jesus. He loves Judas more than he loves Jesus. And you say, well, why would Judas be so deceitful? Why would he be doing Because I believe with all of my heart, Judas, the entire time he is with Jesus, as he is the treasurer, is thinking what the other disciples were thinking, which is one day Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem, and one day he's going to overthrow the Romans, and one day he's going to set himself back up on the king of David, and it will be the wealthiest kingdom that Israel has ever known, and I will be the treasurer. This is my moment. Mary is in such deep worship and love for Jesus that she gives away something very precious. It means nothing to her compared to her Lord. Judas, on the other hand, is so close to Christ, but all he cares about is the money. All he cares about is his own things. All he cares about is having what he wants. All he cares about is Judas. The most frightening, listen, the most frightening individual in all of Scripture is Judas. Because he could be so close to Jesus and completely trusted by the other 11 and be completely unregenerate and on his way to hell. Just because you show up on Sunday, just because you grew up in a Christian home, just because people look at you and think you're a pretty good person, it doesn't mean you are. To contrast Judas, who was in it just for Judas. And why did, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. All right? Because Jesus said, leave her alone. She's doing what's right. And at this point, Judas realizes this is not going where it's supposed to go. And he becomes very angry and very bitter. And this is when he begins to scheme in his heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just check it in and take what I can get and get out of here. I've given three years of my life. This thing is not headed the way it's supposed to go. There's not a lot of money in this gig. And, so, and that's when he begins in his heart to come up with the plan to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So there you have it. One who loves him with abandon, one who loves himself and is ready to, tr to be a traitor to Christ. Third group, verse 9, Then a large crowd of Jews came, and they learned that Jesus was there, and they were not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Verse 10, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on the account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So this third group, the people that relate to Jesus or look at Jesus at this point, are not only angry at Jesus, but they're angry at Lazarus because they're threatening their power. They're threatening their authority. They're threatening everything they have built up in this community. And they know if this continues, they're going to lose it all. They're a lot like Judas, except unlike Judas, they hadn't been living with Jesus for three years. But they were threatened by Christ. Judas wanted money. Mary wanted Jesus, these people are threatened by Christ. 
I just want to tell you, there are some in the church today who love Jesus with abandon and their checkbook and their, their, their calendar shows it. There are some in the church today who are like Judas. On the surface, they look like they're good Christians, but their heart is not in it and they are in it for themselves. And if you don't believe me, just wait until something doesn't go their way or they don't get what they want and they can pitch a fit. I spent... Friday and Saturday with 120 pastors in Northeast Oklahoma leading the revitalization conference. And pastors who come to a revitalization conference are generally pastors whose churches have problems. And the problems the churches have are generally not from the outside, they're from the inside. And they're generally from people inside who want what they want rather than what Jesus wants. And Judas wanted what he wanted rather than what Jesus wanted. But then there's this third group. And they're the ones that are threatened by Christ. The message of Jesus, the message of Lazarus being raised from the dead, threatens everything about them. That's where we are in our culture today. The true gospel, the word of God from Genesis to the map in the back, the absolute truth that God offers, that there is an absolute truth, and he is the author of it, threatens the power structures of the world. And they hate it, and they'll do everything they can do to destroy it. And frankly, for the last... 150 or 200 years in North America, we've lived in a time that's completely abnormal in Christianity. We've been in a time when we've had nothing but the wind at our back. But we are now in a time where we're feeling the headwinds. And I believe these headwinds are about to become a hurricane. And while it's not ever been easy for my generation to walk faithfully with Christ, it will know what compare to what it will take for my grandson's generation to walk faithfully with Christ. Because these people were threatened by who Jesus is. That's still the case. Oh, people want to create their own version of Jesus. It's a lot, I've told you when I started this message this morning, the world always has a view of who Jesus is. And, you know, I, I've got a feeling when, when, uh, when Christ returns and, and the great judgment comes and, and Jesus is there on the right hand of God and all stand before him to be judged. I think there'll be a lot of people who are saying, now, wait a minute, God, remember, judge not, at least you be judged. That seems to be non-Christian's favorite worship, favorite verse, as though, you know, can't judge me. I'm all right. I'm okay. No, you're not. And you can't come face to face with a holy God and know you're okay unless you just want to reject that holy God and reject that absolute truth. Do you know what the spirit of the Antichrist is? The spirit of the Antichrist is that the creation wants to become the creator. I want to determine what's truth. I want to determine what's correct. I don't want an outside arbitrary as I would as they would see it force telling me that whatever I believe is true is true and these Pharisees and religious leaders of the day they were threatened by who Jesus was so much so that they plotted not only to kill him but poor Lazarus gonna kill him again we can laugh about that but you look around at the world and you see how how people you, you, you got, like, sometimes you have these atheists who just hate everything about the church. You go, what's the big deal? You don't like it? Don't come. Why do we threaten you so much? There they are. All right, next group. Verse 12. The next day a large crowd had come to the feast, and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took out branches and palm trees and went out 
crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written in the scripture. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him. At the time, they weren't even fully aware of what was going on, but later they did. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb continued to bear witness. These people are still talking about it. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they'd heard what he'd done with this sign. So this is one description of what we call Palm Sunday. The other gospel writers describe it as well. One describes that Jesus said, I need something to ride on and you'll find a man and there tell him the master needs the, the colt. And actually, the, the mother came with the colt and Jesus didn't ride on the mother, he rode on the colt. And the mother came because the colt would follow wherever the mother went, but Jesus rode on the colt to show his humility. He wouldn't even ride on the, the larger beast. And here we see a group of people with a misplaced passion. Mary's passion was correctly placed. Whether she fully understood she was anointing him for death or not, she knew that she was to do this. Her passion was correctly placed. Judas' passion was for Judas and money. And the Jews and the, the Pharisees' passion was for their worldview that they didn't want threatened. And here, these people have a passion that's misplaced. They see now, this is it. This is the man who can raise from the dead. And they begin to remember all of the Old Testament prophecies. And they, they listen, before we're too hard on them, they have been under the unbelievable yoke of Roman bondage for an incredibly long time. And frankly, listen to me, 60 years after Jesus rides through Jerusalem, right up to the temple, 60 years later, the Romans come in and level the entire city and kill millions of Jews all throughout the land. So their fears were well-founded, and they were desperate. And here's one who, who can raise the dead. It's the Passover. He's clearly the one. He's the one that's going to change everything. He's the one that's going to free us from political bondage. He's the one that's going to give us back all that we've lost to the Romans. He's the one that's going to reinstate the glory of who we are among the nations so we can be proud once again. You want me to connect the dots for you on that one? Sometimes, see, Jesus, some of us see Jesus as someone who only cares about those of us who live in North America. And he's going to take care of us. It's far bigger than that. It was misplaced passion. What they didn't realize, listen, church, as Jesus is making his way, in previous times coming to Jerusalem, he never went right into the temple. He, he was on the hillside, in the courtyard. This time, he goes to the temple because he is about to die. And this is why he came. I say it's misplaced passion. It is passion. They're, they're hailing him as the new Messiah. And certainly the Pharisees and religious leaders hear this and realize this cannot continue. 
that this is going to start a riot, and if it starts a riot, the Romans are going to come and level everything, and a little bit of, of, of authority we have is going to be gone, and we'll probably all be killed, and we've we got to quench this right now. So it just, it just ratcheted up the religious leader's desire to get rid of this guy, but here he comes in, and, and the town is filled with thousands of people, and there were thousands of people crowded in these little streets, and this is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the Son of God. This is the one that's promised. He's headed to the temple. He's going to reinstate the throne of David. This is the day we've prayed and waited for for hundreds of years. It's about to happen, and the crowd gets all worked up into a frenzy. And they begin to cheer and holler and, and, and quote the psalm, and then they take the many palm branches that are around, and they pull them down, and they wave them, and there's something wonderfully... Uh, royal about palm branches. We could spend some time talking about that. But the, the royalty that comes with that. And so here he is, the king. Although he's not on a great white beast. He's not even on a large beast. He's on a colt. He is a king. They got that right. Most kings, when they come, bring with them taxation. <laughs> If I'm your king, you're going to have to pay dues to me. You're going to have to pay taxes to me. But this is a king who doesn't come with taxation and dues. This is a king who comes to give us for free what we don't deserve. That's a different kind of king. Amen? We don't pay him anything. He pays us. Most kings, when they come in, come so that you would be subordinate to them and you would be bonded to them and you would have to be actually enslaved but he doesn't come to enslave us he comes to free us from the one who has enslaved us and that is satan and sin most kings that would come would come and demand only that you love and worship them he comes and says if you love and worship me you'll receive more love from me than you could ever imagine he's a king who loves us like a father, like a brother. He's a different kind of king. He is a king, but not the kind of king they expect. Actually, I want you to visualize this. I want you to visualize this narrow streets filled with people. I want you to visualize this humble little colt on which Jesus is riding. And everyone is quoting the psalm and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're really, it's just this amazing, glorious parade as Jesus heads down these streets of Jerusalem and he heads toward the temple. And remember, listen to me, church, the temple is on the very rock where what happened centuries before. It's the very rock where God told Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and take him up on top of this hill, and I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And while it made no sense to Abraham, he obeyed God. And on that day, Isaac, who was by then a younger man, a young man, helped carry the wood on which he would be sacrificed. And carried it up that very hill where the temple now sits. And they get up there and Abraham being faithful is about ready to take his son, his only begotten son, take his life. And at that last moment, God stops him and provides what? A ram in the thicket to be the sacrifice. 
Do you see the beautiful picture? What's riding through the streets of Jerusalem is not the king that will overthrow the Romans. It is, listen, the pure, spotless, blemishless, sacrificial Lamb of God that will once and forever overthrow the curse of death and sin that we are all under its wrath. Walking through those streets, riding through those streets, isn't just a lamb be taken to the altar and slain. It is the spotless, perfect lamb of God. So spotless, so perfect is he that every sin of every person who ever lived that would ever be redeemed will be cleansed by the blood of this lamb. That's what's taking place on this day. It was misplaced passion. Some of us have a misplaced passion for Jesus. We see him as someone who can do something for us, who can move forward our agenda, who can make our lives better rather than to see him for who he really is. Someone who takes care of the only problem that really matters, the problem of sin and separation from God's love, the problem that we are condemned to God's wrath for all eternity. And that is what he came to release and us from. And that is the curse that he took on our behalf. So there are four people, four groups that look at him very differently. But there's a fifth group, even after this. Verse 20. And now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They weren't even Jews. Wait a minute. We got, we got some Gentiles here. That are, that are headed up to the feast. And they come to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and they said, Philip, sir, we would see Jesus. In a few weeks after we're through with Matthew, I think we'll look at the 12 lives of the disciples. There's a reason they came to Philip, and then there's a reason Philip went to Andrew. So you're just going to have to come back to hear that. They said, Philip... So Philip, verse 22, went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Outsiders, not Jews, Gentiles. And Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Don't know whether he talked to them or not. He probably did. But the unique thing was that the message of Jesus is not just for the Jews. It's not just for Jerusalem. It's for the Greeks. It's for the whole world. That's why we're passionate about missions. That's why you and I are here today. Because the gospel of the kingdom of Christ was not the kingdom of David in a geographical sense there in Israel. It's an eternal kingdom of which all of us are a part. And he is our king. And the idea that these Greeks come to him at the very end wanting to see him is a foreshadowing that his kingdom is going to expand into the entire world. What a glorious sight. But the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, where are you in this picture? Are you like the Greeks? Are you just searching? You don't really know? You just want to know more? Praise God, that's a great place to be. Thank God for these Greeks who said, we don't understand this. We just want to come talk to Jesus. I want you to be in that place if you don't know him as your Savior and your Lord. That's a great place to be. And I want you to know something. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If that's where you are, you didn't get there by yourself. The Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus. 
the Holy Spirit is drawing these Greeks to Christ. And if you're here today and you're wondering and you're questioning, be grateful for that. That's God drawing you to him. What a great place to be. But maybe you're here today and your passion is misplaced. You're like the crowd. You want Jesus to do for you what you want done for you in terms of earthly things and temporal things and political things. You want all that changed. I believe we need to be incredibly involved in our culture. I believe we need to be incredibly involved in our politic. I believe you need to vote. I believe you need to know how to vote. I believe you need to vote your conscience. I believe you need to vote Christian values. I believe Christians need to be engaged in everything. You're not, you, you know me very well. You know how I feel about that. But you listen to what I'm about to say. If you could magically make every single political issue overnight become exactly what you wanted, if you could change everything wrong with this country and immediately overnight you got everything you wanted, you wouldn't move one person from hell to heaven. And a decade or a generation from now, it could all go back the way it was before. Satan would love us to take all of our energy and all of our time and misplace it on things that are temporal rather than things that are eternal. This world is a fog. It's a vapor. It's over. But eternity is on and on and on and on. And dear ones, those who are in the torment of hell have been in there since the moment they passed from this life. And listen, they have eternity to go. He didn't come just to straighten up our life right here, right now, and make our life more comfortable. And make. He came to make eternity for us. Don't misplace your passion on him. If you do, you may be like some of these people who a week later were against him because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. Third group, they were threatened by him. Some of you are threatened by the truth of the gospel. You don't want to hear anybody say there's absolute truth. You like to believe that whatever is true... In your mind is true, and it doesn't bother anybody else. You shouldn't, Pastor, you shouldn't tell me what's right and what's wrong. You have no right to tell me these things. And, this, and so much of our world is threatened by God's absolute truth. And maybe some of you here are. And then the other is Judas. Been in church your whole life, but you don't know Jesus. You know who he is, but you don't love him. You love yourself. There are unregenerate church members. What do I mean by unregenerate? I mean people who are members of churches who've never really repented of their sin and never really asked Jesus to save them. And they can be sometimes pretty active church members. Judas was a pretty active church member. He, gave, he took care of the money. He did everything. They didn't know he was stealing until after the fact. And then there's Mary, who just poured everything out she had to Jesus. I pray this morning you're in one of two camps, you and I. We're either like Mary, willing to give it all up to Jesus because he's all that matters. Or if you don't know him, you're like the Greeks, saying, I just want to learn more about who he is. He is the righteous lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. I want you to see him wandering or, or winding through those streets of Jerusalem on the back of that colt, knowing that there is your hope. There is the sinless, perfect Lamb of God.
come to take away the sin of the world. Come to take away your sin and my sin. And he has prepared for you a place in heaven. And he will come again and receive you that where he is, you will be also. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine being loved. And he will never leave you or forsake you. And his grace is sufficient for whatever comes your way today or the rest of your life. You have one who will stick closer than a brother. May we respond accordingly to that love. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for how we see in it maybe our reactions to you. These are so varied in just a short amount of time. Lord, may we be like Mary. May we pour our heart out to you. Or if there's some here that doesn't know you, may they be like the Greeks and come searching. Or if there's one or two or some of us here who are like Judas, Lord, just grip our heart and can, may we feel overwhelmed by conviction and realize the dangerous place we are in and confess our sin and repent of that. If we're threatened by the gospel, Lord, help us realize you didn't put that there. And if we would just assume Jesus just changed the world to make it good for us, Lord, help us realize that's not why you came either. Speak to each of us at the point of our greatest need at this moment through this text. And may we leave here with a deeper understanding of who you are and who we are in you. And thank you, Lord, that you came. And thank you, God, that you spared not your only son. For when your son carried his wood on the top of that hill, he was slain for me. Lord, may I never get over that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.